And now to close out our time this afternoon, I'd invite you to turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 5. This is a section in Matthew's Gospel we recognize as the Sermon on the Mount. This is the sermon that Christ himself preached. And I know I say this probably every time that we turn to the Sermon on the Mount. I like to refer to this sermon as the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. That preacher being Christ himself. This is his sermon. In a sense, the preacher has the task of getting out of the way when he's in the Sermon on the Mount and letting Christ preach his own sermon to uh, his listeners. I trust that may be the case today as we deal with just um, a section out of this sermon. I'm going to read a portion beginning in verse 27. Matthew 5 and verse 27. This is Christ now speaking, Christ preaching. He says, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery, and whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. Again ye have heard that it had been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, Swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 42. We know the Lord will add his 
blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. I want to deal with verse 41 in particular that we'll get to here. Verse 41, And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain, which means go with him too. He compels you to go one mile, go with him two miles. That's what the Lord is calling for here. One of the benefits that has come to Christians through our Protestant heritage is the benefit of a work ethic. I can remember in my unsaved days, back before I gained a saving interest in Christ, I really didn't have any kind of a work ethic at all. I can remember calling uh, the union boss when I had a job bagging groceries. I had no idea what a labor union even was, but I was a member of one, and I think it was more out of curiosity than anything else that I called the union to report to them that I had not been given my morning break that day. Oh, that led to all sorts of excitement among the workers there. But the union called that boss and climbed all over him, and I never missed another break again after that. I remember another place that I worked at where I was um, uh, also a member of a union. This is the place where the Lord saved me. And there were a whole bunch of us teenage boys and girls, a bunch of youngsters who really had no work ethic at all, And the thought that gripped us at that time was, what's the point of being in a labor union if you can't go on strike? So we went on strike. (laughs) And not long after that, I don't even remember what the issues were behind the strike. I think that uh, people just thought that it sounded interesting and might be fun, so let's go on strike. And before long, we got whatever it is we were striking for, And not long after that, most of us were laid off, which was also fine because that's what we wanted too. So no work ethic of any kind. And uh, I say these things somewhat facetiously, but I also say it with a sense of shame. No work ethic as an unsaved man. This work ethic is traced to the fourth commandment in which we're commanded not only to set aside one day in seven as a Sabbath or a rest unto the Lord, but it's also worth pointing out once in a while that that same commandment calls on us to work six days of the week. Six days we're to labor and do all our work in Exodus 20 and verse 9. In keeping with The Christian's work ethic, Paul writes to the Colossians in Colossians 3 and verse 23, And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. When I worked in printing here in Indianapolis, I typed out that passage in bold letters, printed it out on a computer sheet, and tacked it on the wall in the cubicle where I used to work. I needed the reminder, and I wanted the reminder to be very close to me. 
that at the end of the day, my labor, my work was to be done with an aim to God's glory. I was not merely working for myself. I was not simply working to earn a paycheck, not for myself, not for my family. I was not motivated by the prospects of making the owner of the company more wealthy or making my boss look good. All of that will happen if you're an industrious worker, but that's not the primary aim or motivation in our work. I was motivated by the underlying truth that I was to bring glory to my Redeemer in whatever I did. And the way to do this was to engage in my work with all my heart, to do the best I can for the honor and glory of my Savior. Christians who have picked up on this work ethic become very valuable employees. Unfortunately, it seems in our day that such a work ethic has all but but been lost, and I dare say that the experience of some would be to testify that it's been lost in large measure even among professing Christians. They forget their mission. They forget what they're to be doing and who they're doing it for. With the same pressures upon him that the world experiences, it becomes fairly easy for a Christian to go along with the world's reasoning, which says, give me an honest week's wage for an honest day's work. Did you catch that? Give me in a week, I'll work for a day. I want as much as I can with as little effort as it takes to get it. And on the management side, it works the other way. I want as much as I can get out of my employees while paying as little as I can get by with. This work ethic can become even more abusive when you enter into Christian institutions that employ people. You would think, What a wonderful opportunity, what a privilege. I'm going to work for a Christian printing company or a Christian school or whatever it may be. And yet sometimes, very often, I won't say this is always the case, I hope it's not as much the case as it used to be, but there has been a mindset that seems to be you're working for a Christian ministry and therefore you ought to be willing to work for next to nothing. I remember a friend of mine in the printing industry who worked for a Christian institution initially, and he was told when he gave his notice that he was leaving the Christian institution to go to a place that would pay him more, he was told by his boss that he was walking out of the will of God when he took a job that would better enable him to support his family. God's interest evidently was more in that institution than it was in that man's family, at least according to my friend's boss. Now when it comes to the Christian's manner of living, his work ethic, his integrity, his priorities, his conduct, his testimony, his prayer life, etc., etc., these are all matters you could say that Christ addresses in his Sermon on the Mount. 
You could say, in a sense, that this sermon addresses the broad topic of life in Christ's kingdom. I preached through the Sermon on the Mount many years ago, and I gave the series a title similar to that. Life in Christ's Kingdom. Kingdom living, in other words. And without going into a detailed analysis of the sermon today, it becomes apparent just by a casual reading of this sermon that the standard is very high against the mistaken notions that the law could simply be externalized, Christ makes it very clear that his law weighs the heart motives as well as the actions. Ye have heard, he says five times in this chapter, but I say unto you, that formula repeats itself five times in this fifth chapter. And then Christ would apply the corrective measure to what was being abused or what was misunderstood. Our text this afternoon encompasses the fourth of these ye have heard, but I say unto you formulas. In verse 38 we read, Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The words are taken from the book of Exodus, chapter 21 and verse 24, where the law of Moses is calling for equality and justice. And in that chapter, you find a number of crimes that were to be punishable by death. And in the specific case mentioned in connection with the text that Christ quotes, you have an instance of two men striving And in the course of their striving, a woman with child is struck in such a way as to cause her to give premature birth to her child. If damage was done to that child, then the one who struck the woman is to pay. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, etc. It's a text that indicates quite clearly the value that God places even on the life of an unborn child. The point that the Lord Jesus is making, however, is that whatever is required of the subjects of his kingdom, or whatever are the rights of his subjects, rather than merely being bent on asserting his rights, the Christian is to look for opportunity to be charitable and take the initiative to do more than what may be required of him. Some have sought to read more into the Lord's words than what he intended, as if to say that Christians are to be pacifists in any and all circumstances, and that they are to allow themselves to be taken advantage of in any and every circumstance. Well, a simple comparison of Christ's words with the practices of Christ himself and the apostles, most notably the Apostle Paul, will reveal that not to be the case. Christians are not simply pacifists to be taken advantage of, no matter what the circumstances are. You may recall that when Christ was apprehended and brought before the high priest, 
He was struck by one of the officers with the palm of his hand. That's in John 18 and verse 22. And in that instance, rather than turning the other cheek, Christ protested this action and wanted to know why he was smitten. And in Acts chapter 16, after Paul and Silas had been apprehended and beaten and committed to prison, the time came when they were to be released. But such was the injustice of their imprisonment that Paul asserted his rights as a Roman citizen and insisted that the magistrates themselves come to release him. And don't simply delegate the task to an underling. My point here being to simply illustrate that the Lord's words have to be understood in such a way that they're not inflexible, but they serve as a general principle of charity and initiative that is to govern the actions of his people. And I want to focus your attention in particular to the initiative that is to govern the Lord's people. This initiative ought to set the child of God apart from the rest of the world. It's the rest of the world, you see, that says, I'll do enough just to get by. It's the worldly student who says, I'll do the assignment that my teacher gave me to do, but I'll do no more than that. If the teacher requires a paper that is to be three to five pages long, well, you can be sure I'll do no more than three And I'll type it in such large letters, and I'll try to triple space the lines so that I can even stretch two pages into three. It's the worldly-minded worker who says, Since I don't have to work until 8 a.m., I will certainly not be there any earlier than that, and I won't stay a minute later than 4 p.m., and I better not be denied my morning or afternoon break, and I better be able to get lunch on time. You know, that same kind of thinking can also infect a Christian spiritual attitude and activities. If I can get away with any reasons, I won't read my Bible at all. My prayers will be short and concise with little or no thought. I certainly won't attend the Lord's house any more often than I have to. And where this thinking prevails, you can be sure that there'll be no burden to speak a word for Christ. There'll be no thought about the plight of those that are without Christ. And there'll be no effort, therefore, to speak to them about Christ. I'm afraid that like so many other areas of life, our spiritual lives sometimes function with the mindset that says, I'll do enough just to get by. Oh, if only we could perceive how damaging such a way of thinking is to our testimonies. It might be enough to stir us to do more. If only we could perceive how much thinking, that kind of thinking, must grieve the Lord Jesus himself, who put forth incredible initiative in order to rescue poor, violent, guilty sinners, then maybe we would feel compelled to do more. Well, I want to deal with our Lord's call for initiative this afternoon. It's expressed very concisely in the words of verse 41. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, 
Go with him twain. Go with him too. This precept ought to characterize the Christian's life. So I just want to spend the final couple of moments here. Really, I'm just going to cover one point uh, in this this afternoon on the theme of going the extra mile. Going the extra mile. And what I want to think on in the remaining moments is the motivation for going the extra mile. The motivation. You'll notice in our text that there is a term that refers to motivation. We read, And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. In order to understand the meaning of the phrase, picture yourself in the days of the Roman Empire. You're returning home following a busy day or a busy week of work. You had to travel in your work, and so you're riding on your horse at your leisure, and you're looking forward to a time of well-earned rest. Been a long week, been a hard week, I'm happy to go home. That was the case in ancient Rome, just like it's the case today, I suppose. Well, all of a sudden, you're being hailed by a Roman soldier who is stationed at a relay point where messages go to and from the city of Rome. Your horse is needed, and indeed your service is needed, in order to dispatch some memos pertaining to government business to the next relay point, which may be in a completely different direction from the way you're traveling. You have no choice. You're being drafted into service for the Roman Empire, And in spite of your circumstances, and no matter how inconvenient it is, you must comply with the authority of Rome. And this authority was not restricted to horses or carriages, though it sometimes was exercised over those things. We have an instance in the book of Acts where we see this kind of Roman law put into practice. You may recall when Paul appealed to Caesar in order to escape the plot that was designed to murder him, he, along with a number of other prisoners, was taken aboard a sailing vessel. That vessel would take them to a certain port, and then the centurion who was responsible for the prisoners would find a sailing vessel which could take them to the next port. The owner of the vessel would have no choice but to let the centurion and his prisoners come aboard his ship. And if there wasn't enough room, well, merchandise could be left behind in order to make room. Could be a very costly tax for a ship owner to have to pay, but he was required to nonetheless. Perhaps a more famous example in the Gospels of this law being put into practice is found in Matthew 27. Following the torturous events that led to our Lord's crucifixion, our Savior was so physically drained that it made it next to impossible for him to bear his own cross. And so we read, and we touched on this this morning, verse 32, And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. You'll notice they didn't ask for volunteers. No, they just 
randomly, I suppose, drew somebody out of the crowd. You, what's your name? Where are you from? Uh, Carry this cross. And he's drafted into that service. Now, in the examples I've cited, as well as the Lord's own statement about being compelled to go a mile, the motivating force behind all of that is the motivation of duty or submission or fear of the consequences for failure to comply. There were probably a lot of citizens who would grumble and complain and perhaps try to wiggle their way out of this forced compulsion, but at the end of the day, they would do what was required rather than face the ire of the Roman Empire. Now, why in the world, one might ask, would the Lord Jesus call for going beyond the minimum requirements when that Roman law would, in many cases, seem so unfair and be so inconvenient. The Jews, you will remember, in Christ's time, they resented the fact that they had to suffer Roman occupation. And now does Christ call to go beyond the minimum requirements by going an extra mile? Why doesn't he instead call for the casting off of the Roman yoke? That would have gained him more popular acclaim. And the reason Jesus could call upon his disciples to go beyond the call of duty by going the second mile would be because the Lord has set up a kingdom of his own. It's a kingdom of grace. And in the establishing of this kingdom, the Lord has also equipped his people with a higher form of motivation. Turn me with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want to read two verses from the chapter. Verses 14 and 15. Keep in mind now that this is under our consideration of motivation, Christian motivation, going the second mile. Where am I going to find the motivation for that? Well, listen now and follow along. See what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ constraineth us. That word constraineth, I didn't look that up in the Greek, but I have a sneaking suspicion that it might be the same or a synonym for the word compel. The love of Christ constraineth us or compels us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves but unto him which died for them and rose again. You've ever had the experience of um, citing a verse that you might call your life verse? This is my life verse, especially verse 15, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Uh, Some very tight reasoning in these verses. And you can see from these verses how 
the Christian's motivation works. It's a very logical kind of motivation. It's based on the exercise of our judgment or our discernment. It begins with the simple but incomprehensible truth that Christ loved us. He loved us all the way to Calvary's cross. I love the text in John 13 and verse 1. It says, having loved his own, he loved them unto the end. He loved them all the way to the end of his life, all the way to Calvary's cross. This constraining power of love is based on our understanding that because Christ died for us, We were all dead. That becomes a rather compelling statement, don't you think? In this day when so many are taken up with the issue of their right to do this, that, or the other thing, I have the right to certain benefits because of the color of my skin or my gender or my make-believe gender or because of my sinful sexual orientation, I'm entitled to a life of ease in a world that ought to revolve around me. So the thinking goes. When the whole time the thing that ought to be considered is the fact that since one died for all, then we're all dead. If you realize the full import of such a statement, then the last thing in the world you would worry about would be whether or not you're entitled to this benefit or that government handout or this other kind of special treatment. What does it matter if you're dead? What will it matter when you spend eternity lost and condemned in a lake of fire? What does it matter now if you're separated from God apart from uh, on account of your sin? We draw our motivation from the fact that we were dead. We were dead spiritually. We are destined to die physically and eternally. We were but dead men. But because out of love for you, Christ died for you, then we go on to judge or discern that since we were dead, but Christ redeemed us from death by his death, we should henceforth not live unto ourselves, but unto him which died for us and rose again. Simply put, I owe him everything because I was dead, but he died for me. So now I live and will live eternally. Therefore, I live for him. I owe him that loyalty and allegiance. I owe him that love because he has been that loving and that gracious for me. Think for a moment when you find this Uh, kind of thinking to be challenging. Think for a moment on what Christ was entitled to, but what he actually received. He was entitled to respect, but instead he was despised. He was entitled to a reception worthy of his character, but instead he was rejected. He was entitled to fair treatment, but his trial was anything but that. The Jews were so desperate to do him in that they intensely searched for false witnesses whose stories couldn't even agree. Think of what Christ deserved 
and what he actually received. And then I dare say that uh, you won't have so much trouble living up to the standard that Christ himself gives. Why then do we go the extra mile in our work and in our service to Christ? Well, very simply, we go that extra mile because of a judgment that we make. The love of Christ constraineth us. I judge or I discern that Christ loved me. I discern that I was dead and would be dead eternally were it not for Christ. And then I discern that his death counts for mine, and what that does to me then is it provides for me the motivation to go the extra mile. So let's keep our focus right, okay? In a world where the focus is totally self-centered, a totally narcissistic, oh, let's be Christ-focused on everything that we do for his honor and glory. Let's close then in prayer. Oh, Lord, we do thank thee this afternoon for what Christ has done for us. May it be his love that constrains us to do everything that we do. May it be his love that constrains us to abstain from doing things we shouldn't do. We ask, O oh Lord, that even in the simple tasks that we do in the course of a day, may we be mindful of our Savior, and may we perform those simple tasks realizing that ultimately we're doing them for Jesus on account of what he's done for us. And may we be motivated by that ethic as we perceive the greatness of his love for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.